What is evidence? Evidence provides a why behind our plan of care. For the best outcomes for our patient. Elevate our practice to best standards. Giving the patient the most optimal care that we can. Is what guides us. There's been a lot of growth in our field. Things are progressing. It's different than what we saw 50 years ago. Welcome to Evidence Elevates, helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Welcome everyone to Evidence Elevates. I'm Hallie Zalesnik and I'm the co-chair of the Moving Forward Task Force. I'm very excited to be here today with PT Supervisor from Madonna Rehab in Omaha, Nebraska, Callie Carlson. We invited Callie today to talk with us about the role that clinical leaders, such as supervisors or directors, can play in moving evidence-based practice forward in our profession. Welcome, Callie. Thank you. Glad to be here. Would you be able to start by briefly telling us a little bit about yourself, particularly the story of how you became a supervisor? Sure. So I have been at Madonna since 2009. Um, we have two campuses, an Omaha and a Lincoln campus. Um, I started at the Lincoln campus um, for seven and a half years. I primarily was on the stroke team and um, stroke was my passion. Um, in 2016, Omaha campus opened. So I transitioned there and I continued my work on the stroke unit here while also taking on a supervisor role. So I supervise the physical therapists that are on acute rehab. And then we have some therapists who float between our acute rehab beds and our LTAC beds. Fantastic. That is a big job. Yeah. Sure. So kind of moving into our discussion here today, as a supervisor, maybe thinking back to the early phase of your experience, um, what approach did you take to managing continuing education and development of the clinicians under you? So at Madonna, we have an education budget and we have a lot of the leaders meet together to talk about the hospital goals, strategic plan, and kind of determine what are the most appropriate areas to support our clinicians to either go out externally or um, to bring speakers in internally. Um, I would say it's kind of evolving because we're trying to um, take in this uh, idea of knowledge translation to try and help bring that evidence more into action um, and actually get that evidence out into the floor and consistently performed. When, an, when a therapist goes out um, or any clinician goes out to an external event, they are expected to come back and bring that information to us. Um, and I think we're just trying to refine that a little bit. So that way we're doing a better job of implementing this, the education and evidence on the floor. Very interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is that Maybe previously people would go and do the education that they wanted to do or that they were interested in, but it sounds like now as a leadership team, you're more proactive about the direction of the programs, seeking out more evidence-based continuing education and bringing that in. And then for the individuals that still go out for external courses, you're asking them to come back and also share that information and figure out how that can be implemented into the practice as well. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's really great. When we spoke a few weeks ago, you talked about several initiatives that you're involved in to improve the evidence-based care. 
in your program. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what those are and how you came to making those efforts a priority. So back in 2019, we had a clinician go to CSM, um, came back super excited about one of the um, one of the speakers that he heard um, talking about high intensity training, outcome measures, kind of this idea of knowledge translation. Um, and from that kind of stemmed into multiple things. So um, he was super excited because he felt like Madonna had a lot of the tools to be able to provide some of this newer evidence um, based practice. Um, and he's excited because he felt like literally tomorrow we could start implementing this. Um, when some of us were still providing some of that more traditional rehab approach. And so lots of conversations happened. We got the stroke program leader involved and, you know, ultimately then the locomotor CPG came out and those clinical practice guidelines have really been a great guide for us. And we've utilized those a lot. Um, and so from that, we recognized that we needed to be doing things at a higher intensity from a therapy perspective, but also knowing that stepping practice and repetition um, is super important. So we got together and came up with these, what we call just ambulation orders. So this is walking times that are scheduled outside of therapy. So therapy could really focus on the intensity, getting them, um, up in those higher zones and then outside of therapy, they're also getting more repetition in practice. So just a more focused approach on trying to make patients more mobile. I'm gonna ask a follow-up question. Okay. Um, if you could talk to us, I think we've all experienced in clinical practice difficulties with trying to make changes, even not just beyond ourselves, not just beyond our the physical therapists that we work with, but a lot of times we're wanting to make changes that incorporate other professions in our team. And so it sounds like you were able to successfully do that with the ambulation orders. And I didn't know if you could share um, how you really approached that to try to get buy-in from other professions that you worked with. Yeah. So I think as a stroke leadership group, we really, when you're digging in the evidence and it's so profound how keeping people, patients mobile, um, and allowing, you know, therapy then to focus on the intensity piece that was super important. And so I think having those open conversations, relating it back to the evidence, and then with these ambulation orders, it's been nice because we've been able to allow um, the OTs and the speech therapists to know kind of who are those patients that we should really be focusing on walking with, because then in their treatments, they can also carry that over, right? So um, yes, we have patients that physical therapists, it's to assist and there's a lot of handling skills and those patients aren't appropriate for ambulation orders. But if an ambulation order is entered, then they know that both speech usually and OT could be also walking and emphasizing the walking piece. Perfect. And then kind of the flip side, um, what kinds of things have you done as a leader to support the PT's change? Um, from that leadership perspective? Yeah, I would say I'm still, um, that's, that's also evolving and I'm, I'm working and learning on that constantly. But I think the biggest thing that I've really noticed is just listening here, you know, each clinician kind of has their own barriers potentially. Um, and, you know, based on their experience have different 
people who have influenced their practice. And so I just try and take a different approach with each of the therapists, but really listen to what their true barriers are and then try and help, you know, come up with plans. We, like I said, going back to those clinical practice guidelines has really helped because it's pretty clear in there. Um, and then also supporting them in the education. So, you know, identifying who's most appropriate to go. We've sent a lot of people to the walk the walk course um, to help give them, you know, that specific education um, to hear it directly from those presenters in the past. And even when we do send people out and they come back and bring information, it's still a little bit watered down. And so um, having them go directly to that course, I think has been very helpful. Um, and then I think addressing the, you know, making things easy and efficient for them as best you can and keeping safety a priority. I think, um, you know, when they bring new evidence back, if it gets complicated, um, we revert to what we're comfortable with. Whereas if we can make it a little more efficient and easy. So a simple example is the heart rate monitors. We felt like, you know, that was important to focus on intensity. So our administration was very supportive of making sure our PTs had those available to them. Um, outcome measures, making sure that everybody feels comfortable with them, um, you know, setting up some things so that way everything's taped off, they can take them to this hallway, we can get that completed. Um, and it's not, like I said, complex, it's more efficient for them. So they can start to learn good habits and do that with all of their patients. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what I heard you say was that you have some strategies to address some of the global barriers that the PTs are experiencing collectively. So not having equipment to even know how, you know, they're challenging their patients from an intensity perspective. So getting proper heart rate monitoring or creating an environment that is conducive to outcome measure collection. I was wondering if you could touch on maybe some examples of individual barriers. You talked about really listening to the individual therapist um, and their own barriers and maybe giving an example of an individual who, you know, had uh, kind of their own set of barriers and how you address those. Yeah. I mean, I think um, depending on how long you've been practicing, safety comes into play. And um some of that is safety of the patient, you know, getting into high intensities and worried about the safety of the patient. How I've addressed that is, you know, prior we would be doing therapy, but not continuously monitoring them. Now you do continuously monitor them. So that is one way to be safer. The other thing is, is I feel like we typically, when you're talking with therapists, a lot of times our minds go to that hardest patient. Um, and so, again, we have a lot of two assist patients that require, you know, an aid plus yourself, and that's the safety of yourself is super important. And so talking through strategies, what equipment you can use, how you can use those second assists um, is super important to make them feel comfortable um, and allow them to try those things. And then I always just tell them, like, you need to practice these newer strategies on those patients that you feel really comfortable with, where you can challenge them. Don't go to your hardest patient. Um, and then, you know, then come back to me and we can kind of talk through things. And we had a clinician who went to the walk the walk course initially. So then I've also referred those 
therapist to that clinician, you know, have him come to sessions one-on-one, ask him questions directly on the spot um, to help make you feel more comfortable. Perfect. You also mentioned some uh, changes that you've made related to outcome measure collection. I was wondering if we could just kind of change directions a little bit. And as a leader in a program of physical therapists, how have you been able to utilize outcome measure collection and kind of demonstrate that from a value perspective in kind of the administrative and leadership world? Yeah, so we came together um, and collaborated with our program managers here and really ultimately came up with the um, a standard set of outcome measures that we would use, use per diagnosis. Um, and so we, from a physical therapy standpoint, obviously related back to the outcome measure clinical practice guideline. And then we have now had staff um, at, it is required at beginning initial evaluation and discharge that they have to perform that um, outcome measure. However, getting staff more in tune with the CPG, I would say from a physical therapy standpoint, we're seeing, I mean, our staff are doing it more consistently weekly um, or at least every other week, not just beginning and end of their uh, length of stay. And when you're referencing the CPG, are you referencing the core set of outcome measures? Yes. Great. And so I, I don't know if you've experienced this ever, but sometimes when we're trying to promote change as leaders, there's, um, you have to be careful about how you do it. You want to promote it positively. Um, and I think as a task force, we've been really cognizant about that. And there are times where people just aren't interested in changing. And I was wondering if you had had that experience at all and maybe how you dealt with that or maybe how you preemptively dealt with it by trying to uh, avoid it in the way you presented changes like implementing outcome measures or monitoring patients differently. Yeah, we feel like we're providing the best evidence-based care, right? Um, and so we don't intentionally not provide that, but you are at, through your practice, kind of influenced by others as you're learning uh, who you go to ask questions for when you're new and you kind of develop these habits for lack of a better term. So then when it comes to change, change is hard. And so it is really important to have open conversation, you know, with the clinicians, providing them some of the evidence. And I think having a discussion and being able to challenge each other respectfully, um, you know, because it all relates back to the evidence and it all relates back then to our patients. We need to be providing our patients the best evidence-based care. And, you know, 10 years ago, that could have been maybe the best practice. And there hasn't been a lot of change in your practice over 10 years. Um, and so then it's my job to help support, you know, providing you some of the evidence when I do chart reviews, asking you in-depth questions and helping you make those changes. Um, but then it is the accountability of the therapist to help follow through with that. I mean, that is, we are here for the patients and we're here to provide the best care to them. And the best care is evidence-based practice. And so, we definitely, um, I try and always relate it back to that patient. You wouldn't provide somebody, you know, not very good care just because that's what you're used to doing. We have to change with healthcare. Yeah. I think you bring up a really 
a really good set of key points when kind of working with somebody who's not ready for that change. Number one, open discussion, being willing to listen. Number two, being respectful of each other and hearing each other out. And then number three, you talked about bringing the evidence. So just coming back to the science mm -hmm. and the, understanding that the science has changed and there are some things that we need to move away from and there are new things that we need to move towards. So I think that's a really great approach. And I think hopefully, you know, different leaders and supervisors listening will be able to kind of take that too. You know, another thing that you had mentioned early on um, in passing was a clinician who had gone to a con ed course and wanted everything to change overnight very <laughs> quickly. And I think we all experienced that. But the reality is, is oftentimes, especially practice, which involves changing what you're actually doing on a day to day basis, doesn't happen with like this big bang overnight. We're ready to go. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, maybe an example of a time when you just kind of took smaller steps towards a bigger change, having a bigger change in your kind of future vision, but just kind of giving little things along the way for people to start to do. He definitely wanted it to happen overnight. Um, and, you know, we all do when we have these exciting things. Um, what I challenged him with was to start implementing that into his practice. Um, we worked on getting like one heart rate monitor to trial. Um, so that way he could get some good kind of data and, you know, practice it and feel comfortable and then set up a staff in service that we could present and provide some specific case studies. So that was kind of the opener to like start getting the information out to staff, get them kind of thinking and, you know, excited about a new technique. And then from there, we went to like a bigger now we're going to start prepping for like an actual continuing education course because um, now we have the locomotor CPG that can help um, along with the core set uh, CPG. And so that was kind of the next step. And then we just kind of slowly started implementing other little things. Our next step was those ambulation orders, like let's get people moving more outside of therapy and understanding that, you know, moving it kind of is helpful too with intensity. If we can do that outside of therapy, they're just getting more steps and repetition. Um, and now we're to the point where we have a lot of people implementing this. So now we can talk about what are the true barriers and I can help kind of, you know, talk through those and try and overcome them. And if I don't have the answer, like I said, we have several people now who've taken the walk the walk course um, who can be resources to other therapists. Perfect. And so I think that was a really great outline of just kind of how you get someone to dip their toes in, get some patient examples, some case studies and grow from there. Now that you've kind of brought it in where it's more regular, I'm curious as to how you see or plan to kind of maintain that change or maintain the evidence-based practice um, or maintain a focus on constantly evaluating and moving with the evidence? That is the part that we are definitely where we are <laughs> and what we're focused on right now. And I think that knowledge translation, we have some different education that we're looking into specifically on knowledge translation to help us um, learn how to do that better. Um, I don't think we do it great now. I think there's 
um, spurts of time when staff are real excited, like after that CEU, staff were real excited. And then it's like easily you can revert back to, like I said, just kind of your older habits and what you are comfortable with, right? And so um, it is a constant discussion um, when we're doing chart reviews, when we're looking at outcomes, when we're, you know, retroactively looking at the charts and seeing kind of what things we could have done better and how we could have um, addressed certain things differently. But I think that's an area um, that we're definitely working on. I'm wondering if you've um, done anything at all. You mentioned kind of retrospectively looking back at charts of patients who maybe didn't do so well. And I'm wondering if you've tied any of your evidence-based practice changes into patient outcomes, um, into those numeric values, whether it's the core set outcomes or rehab required outcomes to see that if therapists, you know, are practicing more evidence-based contemporary, are their outcomes better versus people who are maybe um, haven't embraced the evidence so much, what are their outcomes if you've gotten to that point yet? We have not from an outcome measure standpoint, but that's our goal. Um, so we have just implemented that um, within like this past year. And so we're that's what we're hoping to have. And that was kind of our goal with that big project. Um, but we have noticed um, our GG scores for walking um, have improved drastically. We've increased that by several points um, in the last year. And so from a stroke program standpoint, we have program leaders, they bring those outcomes back to us. And that was a real big push for us. And so um, she has, uh, the program manager has presented that to us and has been looking at it closely and kind of dug into each of those charts. And it is, def there's definitely been a change with um, the focus of walking and intensity in our sessions. We need to do a better job of documenting that and the intensities piece specifically, but there has been a change in this past year over time, which has been a good a move in the right direction. Gotcha. And I think we started to touch base on this earlier, but just kind of coming back to it, what is the value um, to the healthcare system that you work for in really utilizing evidence-based practice and focusing so much on changing practice because it takes time. It takes effort. Mm -hmm. um, certainly it sounds like you guys have some continuing education funds you're able to use and that's money that's going to support education. So what's the, the return on investment to where you're working? They, we're very lucky. They very much value education and providing evidence-based practice. And I think, you know, when this clinician brought information back regarding some of this high intensity training and outcome measure type route, um, which got us excited because it, it was showing, you know, essentially you're able to get more in less time with the patient, which is what we need. And then um, to be able to get patients home, to be able to get them set up so that way they can continue, they can be more mobile, return to the community. Um, I feel very, very lucky to have the support. I can have open discussions with leadership above me. Um, we have a specific stroke leadership group that has these open discussions and talks about this kind of stuff, um, which only provides support for all of our floor clinicians to be able to, um, you know, learn these new things and techniques and change over time and then implement them. So I think also now we're getting support for that knowledge translation piece, which will help with that whole 
sustainability piece, which I think is super important and obviously necessary over time. Perfect. So what I'm hearing you say with that one is simply that you have a really great institution that you're working for that values high, providing high value care. And then the return on investment is that when we were providing higher value care, our patients are getting better faster, which is of course less um, healthcare expenditures, which is wonderful for all parties involved. So that's really great. I was wondering, um, the supervisor, if you were giving advice to clinicians who are really wanting to approach their leadership team or approach their um, direct supervisor about gaining support to make a change, what advice would you give them if, you know, the clinician came to you and said, gosh, where I work, you know, I, you know, I really want to promote this change, but our leadership team isn't well-versed, you know, what, what would help me in making that case? You know, bringing the evidence behind it um, and having a good presentation to them about the why, how it affects your outcomes, how this is going to help the facility, why it's important um, and crucial for the patients is huge. I mean, I think when this clinician came to me, when I'm thinking back, um, you know, just the excitement behind things, because he really knew that this could be implemented here he he got a great feeling that this is what we should be doing because of the evidence that was presented and he was giving me that evidence left and right and um while we all wish we could you know just sift through the evidence as a supervisor you're you're doing a lot of other roles on top of patient care and so you really value those clinicians who bring some of that to you um and so i think Having the evidence there, um, those clinical practice guidelines, I think the AMPT does a great job of having a lot of um, just things out there for you to the cheat sheets on the outcome measure, like all the little things that just reinforces we should be doing this, right? The clinical practice guidelines, um, they make it easy for how you can standardize it across all of your clinicians and across care. Um, all of those things are super important um, to bring to, you know, your supervisor to try and promote change. Yeah, I think those are all really, really good points. And kind of on the flip side, what advice would you give to another leader or another supervisor who approached you and said, gosh, I'm ready to make these changes with my clinicians, um, but I don't know how to start? What advice would you give them? I think start small. I think our minds always go to this huge picture and our end goal. And um, it you have to go slow to move fast almost. <laughs> so it's important to kind of like we referenced earlier, think about the little things that you can do and be successful at and then slowly build on that um, to get to that big picture. If you go straight to the big picture, it's going to be more frustrating and challenging than anything. And you're more likely to just give up. Um, I think if it was the example with outcome measures, like just think about the outcome measure itself and everyone, all of your clinicians being able to perform that outcome measure in a standardized way, start there, like get everybody familiar with that um outcome measure make sure you're all using the same tools consistently within your um organization and then once they feel comfortable with that okay now we're gonna start talking about who these are um appropriate who what outcome measures you should be 
providing on what patients and which ones are the most appropriate or if all of them are appropriate. Um, and then, you know, kind of keep adding in little things so that way you can get to your end goal successfully and be realistic with your timeline. And then you kind of talked about this a little, but I thought maybe formulating it into a more formal question would be helpful. Um, but as a supervisor, like you said, it, everybody's busy. There's a lot going on. And particularly as a supervisor, where you're often in a position where you have your own patient care responsibilities and then administrative responsibilities as well. Um, where do you go for finding strong evidence so that you don't have to parse through the myriad of publications to try to find something? Um, is there kind of somewhere that you like to access information that you know and you can trust? I mean, we go to the, we use the AMPT a lot. Um, we have program managers here who are kind of that unique subset. Um, and we have program managers over our CARF accredited di um, diagnostic groups. So they're always a good resource because their job is kind of be out there in the evidence and to be able to bring that back to us. Um, and then they can always help direct me, um, you know, if I have questions there from that point on. Um, they also have different people, consortiums, the listservs that they can, you know, communicate with, that we can communicate with and be able to ask other, you know, organizations that are similar to us how what's worked for them, what hasn't, um, and maybe any recommendations that they have as we start to make a change in whatever area that is. Perfect. There are times too when clinicians are resistant to change because they feel like you're taking away their clinical decision-making ability by requiring them to do a certain treatment or an outcome measure and that you're reducing their ability to really be autonomous as a profession and kind of how you address that. Yeah, that's, I think, an important one. I don't, I think it's important, you know, as clinicians, we need to set aside our kind of personal feelings, um, because we ultimately need to think about what we're doing for what we need to do for the patient, right? And it goes back to the evidence. And it cannot be thought of as we're stripping, you know, your autonomy away from you. There is a lot of autonomy within what interventions you choose and pick for this patient, while also applying the evidence. Okay, so um, I think it's super important to, to just have an open mind and be willing to change over time with healthcare. Um, we cannot always be stuck in our ways from 20 years ago. You know, 20 years from now, we may be having a whole different conversation, but with science, we have to be willing to change. And I think as healthcare professionals, We've agreed, we, being in the healthcare profession, we've agreed to follow the science. Um, and so that means change and change is hard. I'm not gonna say that it's easy, but we have to set our personal feelings aside and we ultimately have to go back to the data and what and let that guide us and drive our treatment of the patient. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, really just taking that scientific approach and leaving our, our feelings out of it. And, you know, Another piece of advice that was given to me by one of my mentors over the years was just simply that we can't have these like 16 lane highways anymore with care. And we're not saying take it down to a one way street. We're saying from a 16 lane highway to a four lane highway. So there's mm -hmm. still room to move to ebb to flow based on the patient in front of you, but we're getting, we're certainly reducing not all variability, but unwarranted variability. Right. 
And I think if you look at 10 stroke patients, like we should be able to look at 10 stroke patients and say they're getting consistent care where the evidence-based care, wherever they're at. Right. Yeah. Um, and if there's weak or absent evidence on this treatment approach, then one of those 10 patients should not be receiving that care. They should have the same opportunity to receive the evidence-based approach that all other nine patients are getting. And I think that as a profession is what we need to, what you guys are doing a great job of working towards. That's what we're trying to get, right? More standards of care, consistency of care. So wherever you go, you get great care. Yeah, I think that's great. I think your perspective is just so different than the perspective that we've heard so far. So good. I think it's really going to be very valuable. Well, Callie, thank you so much for your time. I think that the insights that you provided here today are extremely valuable. And I think they'll be valuable to clinicians who want to approach their leadership to change and also to leaders who are trying to drive change from their perspective. So you are doing amazing work and we really appreciate your time. Have a great week. Thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media or find our website at neuropt.org. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.